Hi guys, welcome to the Revised Stronger Podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I am very happily to welcome Eric Helms onto the show again. Uh, how's everything going, Eric? We just spoke of your, your seven weeks post-show already. How's that all going? Seven weeks and three days out here and being one day ahead land of the Southern Hemisphere International Dateline side. So I'm good, man. I am uh, much less lean and much more fed. So it's good times. How's this compared to previous kind of post-comp? Way better. So so yeah, so for, for listener history, um, even though I'm sure everyone has followed along my journey all the way since 07, uh, taking meticulous notes. <laughs> I mean, they, they should have, right? Uh, so I competed 07, 09, 2011, and then I took off uh, heaps of time for the the PhD and second master's. Um, so after 07, that was uh, a complete blowout where I gained a shocking 22 kilos in two months, um, going from the only diet structure I had being a skinny guy following the seafood diet to contest prep, and then not having a plan afterwards besides the list of restaurants, uh, that went predictably terrible. Um, and that was when I probably could have been diagnosed with binge eating disorder. So that was not a good year to put it simply. Um, 09, the only goal I had, um, although I, I did have structure, but the main goal based on 07, I set the bar so low was <laughs> do not become obese. And I succeeded <laughs> in that goal. Um, Instead of gaining 22 kilos in two months, I put on, uh, let's see, that would have been uh, like, I think, yeah, like 10 kilos in six months. And then I got up to uh, maybe 15, 16 kilos heavier in a year, which was fine because I was still kind of in bulk mode back then. Um, and that's fair enough. You know, 2010, I'd been lifting for I guess six years. So maybe I had, maybe, maybe it did something positive. I don't think I needed to get that heavy. I'm just trying mm. to justify it in, in the past tense. And then 2011, this was when we were all in, in the grips of um, building metabolic capacity and uh, metabolic damage and uh, charging up all, all, all the good stuff by eating carbs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I reverse dieted. Um, and that went really well. I was a relatively seasoned competitor and relatively seasoned coach at this point. Uh, it went so well that I was actually, I think I was, man, like six kilos up from stage weight well into the end of the year. I think I was approaching the holidays and my last show was in early August. So it was like November. Um, and I was annoyed with myself that I was still food focused. Um, so I decided to just eat more and gain weight. So I was hanging around, uh, I think I competed under 180 and I was hanging around 190 and I still had like gnarly hamstrings as an example. Um, and I, I wasn't really like making gains either. So yeah. I, I basically, I basically had gained some body fat and some macros, but not much else. So, um, yeah, that was kind of when I was like, what, what's the point of this? Like if it takes you, you know, three seasons and coaching experience um, to follow a reverse diet. And the outcome is just that, you know, you look good in pictures and have macros that are worth bragging about, but don't make any progress. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even have an Instagram account. What's the point of this? Like, <laughs> I, you know, so, so anyway, uh, this, this by far was the best. I very intentionally put on about 10, I got to 10% over stage weight within, I want to say, I think like bloated water retention four weeks and legitimately in, in maybe five or six weeks I was I was that heavy. Cool. So um yeah. I'd say fair amount of that is weight of gut uh, gut material, yeah. um glycogen, but and maybe some regain lost muscle. But um I did the reverse diet back in July and August and, and late June. So my calories have been only coming up since the third week in June. And I, for reference to the, uh, the listeners, I had shows July 6th, July 20th and August 10th. So I had, um, I want to say my math is failing me. I had uh, two weeks in June and all of, all of July. And then, uh, a week and a half in, in August of, of eating up into my shows. I actually got to the point where I could no longer eat up and I was just maintaining around 24 to 2800 calories every day in uh, August. 
How low did you calories get to in the end? I think it's probably useful to look at weekly averages. So I was down as low as around nine kcals per pound mm. uh, average across the week, just under that. So at about 180 pounds stage weight, uh, that was like 1600 calories average per day at my lowest. Um, and then at my highest, I was averaging, man, I'd say 2,500 calories a day. So would you say, Soros, do you think no, you're no, towards you the lower end, like on average, like with your competitors and with how low people have to go, or do you think you're pretty average? I think if you if you start scaling it to my activity level, I'm like within one standard deviation, but going the way no one wants to go. Um, and then if you just look at it relative to height uh, and weight, yeah. and that not height, just weight, um, then you're like, oh my god, you're you're a cockroach, you know, like uh, you'll survive anything. So yeah, one, one of the things that I decided to do was actually get a, a Fitbit around the end of my contest season because I was just realizing how sedentary I was. Like I was, right. I knew I was sedentary, but then when I actually saw what my, my wife's step count was knowing that she's a student and walks to school, like with her studying all day, walking to school and working out, she was just barely hitting like 10 K steps on day she had class. Okay. And I was like, shit, I, I know my schedule. I don't, I don't walk to school. Um, so I, we very intentionally now have uh, habits where I, I'm trying to get to 10 K a day, but it's like more like I get there half the days and my average is around 10 K. And now all of a sudden my intakes make sense, you yeah. know? Um, like I said, still being like one standard deviation below, the mean but that's still well within the, the bell curve yeah i'm normal damn it. yeah <laughs> just about <laughs> in some ways um yeah so yeah, yeah it's a, i'm it, not an outlier <laughs> the context is super important it's berto who's the outlier if there's anyone who's an outlier so um i know i remember jeff saying he ends up doing quite a lot of cardio but that's relative to the fact he doesn't like move around that much outside of that or he kind of has cycled and things i wonder if he's changed that but i remember him saying that in the past yeah, yeah. No, no. Jeff is um, like when I remember when Jeff used to work at uh, Numi, which was a uh, auto plant that got closed down during the uh, recession uh, right around the time 3DMJ was formed. Um, his numbers were were not not quite Berto levels, but really close. Um, same thing with Brad uh, when he owned a gym and he was a teaching. He was like the everything for the gym. It's a small town in uh, Portola, which uh, no one would know of. It's a small mountain town uh, outside of Reno and far outside of it. And uh, he was the owner. He was the Group X instructor. He was the guy who organized events. He was the personal trainer there. Like he had like five hats, like yeah. maintenance, trainer, <laughs> like, you know, he had meetings with himself and be like, hey, you know, you really need to step up your game on on resigns. And uh, by the way, can you go clean that and then change to his maintenance hat and go clean up the floor? So anyway, um, he was dieting on pretty high calories. Jeff was dieting pretty high calories. Berto doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then I was, the, I thought I was the slug. Um, but the reality was, is that I was the one who'd, who'd always had the most sedentary lifestyle out of, out of us. And then when Jeff, when the plant closed down and he started sitting on, you know, creating our, our website for 3DMJ coaching full time. Uh, and then, you know, when, when Brad sold his gym and, uh, spent most of his time coaching, um, all our energy expenditures dropped I mean, predictably and then Birdo's didn't, but maybe that's cause he keeps his hikes up. There's something going on there. Yeah. I think he has a tapeworm. Yeah. It's the dogs. So. We've recently just got a dog and, uh, that's jacked up my step count. So maybe it's, I don't know what he does with his dogs, but there's something there. Maybe <laughs> there was time. He was a full-time coach pre pre dogs and it, and maybe it was cause he was hiking around the Bay area, but, uh, I don't know how much hiking you can get in when you've got like 50, 50 clients, you know, like <laughs> I think it was pre, you could do the reports on your phone too. Like, I don't know, man. Tapeworm is my hypothesis. So. Yeah, you can't walk around coaching. <laughs> oh, it's fidgety. So on that note, out of interest, because obviously you've got a huge amount of experience. You've taken loads of people to stage. Have you ever, how often even actually, I imagine it does happen. You get with people where you're just like, is it reasonable to take them any lower in calories? Uh, how, like, have you ever, is there a push comes to shove? Is there a limit? 
Yeah, there. I think I think there there is um, there are some. So the kind of the way we way we do it is we have some group guidelines. Like I don't want to go below this, and if we do, we 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 a we have a conversation with the client to be like, hey, this isn't where we want to stay, but we might need to do this to get here. Here are the other options, and we kind of lay out the pathways in front of them as as, as an athlete. And have a discussion with them, um, and we loop in our uh, team RD Steve Taylor and the other coaches, just in case. Like, hey, am I missing something? Yeah, uh, maybe I haven't uh, looked at this data well enough. Uh, maybe you know, like, and this is after we make sure, like, we've done kind of the audit to make sure, like, nothing's being untracked. Uh, you know, we have a, a conversation so they know, hey, we're you know, if you've been eating off the plan, we're not going to punish you. We're these are your goals. Just try to create the an environment where they know they can be honest with us without any re- recrimination, um, where we even try things like diet breaks or eating up yeah. or et cetera, you know, based on the context, you don't always have the time to do that. So, um, all of the things in the front end, you know, how people talk about putting someone on a fixed meal plan just for a few days so that they weigh-ins are predictable or, uh, like the, the meal replacement, uh, version of that. I've heard that too, like all the different strategies you could imagine to make sure that, uh, the data in front of you is actually what's happening to the best of your knowledge, um, creating an environment where, uh, the athlete is comfortable being as honest as they can, and then creating any potential inadvertent errors of tracking. Um, and it's happening less and less and less as we get better at all those soft skills. Um, one big thing we've changed is, uh, actually having clients track step count because almost any phone can do it now. And we find now we can kind of limit the variability in uh, downward adaptations to NEAT so that things make more sense. But it still does happen occasionally. So anyway, with that massive preamble that didn't answer your question, some of those low-end limits are we try not to go below uh, 0.5 grams per kg of fat, uh, 1 gram per kg of carbs, um, 8 kcals per pound, which is roughly 20 kcals per kg. And that's an average intake over the week. So like if they have low days and refeeds, it's pretty low to get down that low, you know, a pretty rare to get down that low, I should say. Um, and we try not to do more than like daily cardio, you know, but that when I say like, it's weird, we don't really prescribe a lot of traditional cardio anymore now that we track step counts. So it's, that's, that's a, that guideline has kind of, it's off in some Island by itself going, you guys yeah. forgot me. So anyway, when we do start to go below any of those limits, that's when we loop everyone in. Cool. Um, and then we can all get a get an eyeball on it. The client knows what they're getting into. We we set a time frame where we think we'll need to do this. Like, hey, let's dig for four weeks and we'll yep. do a diet break, et cetera, that type of thing. Right. Uh, but those are our general lower limits. Um, and then there's sometimes context-specific things. Like a really small person, uh, I might not want to cut them that low because even though on paper, eight cal, eight, like, you know, uh, eight kcals per kg is, sorry, per pound is not insane if you really know how to set up a good diet. Like for for myself, you know, we're talking 1500 to 1600 calories. Yeah. Like if I just pretty much eat veggies, a couple pieces of fruit and lean protein, I know I'm, I'm getting a decent diet and I'm hitting that, that, that value. But if you are only 50 kilos, you know, it's actually quite difficult to set up a diet where you're making sure that you're micronutrient adequate. So in that case, it may be that calories stay closer to 22 kcals per uh, per, per kilogram, no matter what. Um, but we emphasize a higher step count or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel for those people that legitimately have to push to that lower end. Like you said, mm-hmm. they're, they're the, in it, I don't know, in some ways it's great. They're the cockroaches. They're going to survive, but in yeah. our society, it's just not something that is wanted. At least at the moment, there might become a zombie apocalypse or something, but, uh, it's just not highly likely. <laughs> Yeah, I have a notebook where I note down all the people who are like that just so that I know when I <laughs> gather my band of, of survivors together, I'll, I'll hit them up. Like Birdo, absolutely not. Not getting <laughs> picked, you know. You, you get picked for, for for bodybuilding team sports, but uh when when we develop those, but not not for the uh team team walking dead. So kind of I, I think I also your question was how often do I see that? I would say maybe two out of ten people somewhere okay. somewhere in there have to really hit rock bottom like that. And then I actually, I, I'm thinking about it. I really do see kind of a normal distribution from a scientific perspective. Like it's less than one out of 10 people who I'm just like, what? This is crazy low. And it's less than one out of 10 people who are like, okay, you're a lightweight and we're on 400 grams carbs, you know? So like I've right now, I've got a, um, 
I'm middleweight who is, I've walked low days up to 450 grams of carbohydrate and he has a reasonable number of, uh, of cardio sessions and he's shredded. Um, but he'd had to get down into the 300s. And I would say that's, I mean, that's low. I mean, that's sorry, that's high, but it's not insane. You know, it's, it's impressive. It's nice. It's yeah. awesome. But I'd say it's like two standard deviations from the mean, not three, you right. know? So it's yeah. interesting because I know just in like a side note, I know Andrew, Andrew Chappelle's kind of research and looking at like the BMBF competitors and they all had like quite high carbs or at least the, the kind of pros there. Um, I think it's, I don't know, maybe because it was such a small sample size or at least it doesn't seem as common from what I've seen like out there. I don't know if you've got many thoughts on that, Eric. You know, I, my current opinion, uh, because I've been looking at uh, a lot of these studies is that there are, despite the internet, I think there are pockets of bodybuilding subcultures um, that, that are different. So for example, um, there's a significant crew in the UK who I notice eat high carb, low fat, and they do a little more towards kind of a bro split train into failure, um, but otherwise tend to do similar things to American bodybuilders. And then the American bodybuilders tend to be on like a little more influenced by the keto or paleo or, or low carb, uh, type approach with more cardio. Um, and, but other things are quite similar. Uh, and then there's, you know, folks who are following like, and they're more spread out kind of the, the 3DMJS approach, which tends to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and, uh, and then you get, uh, you know, like. I think it depends on on like who your favorite influencers are. Mm. I think it's, it depends on where you're from. Um, I know a lot of uh, South American competitors follow a uh, higher fat, lower carb approach. There was a study that came out of, I think it was a study of Brazilian men's physique competitors. Um, and then I noticed similar things in kind of the Oceania region. There's, there's different influences there. So it depends if like if you're a bodybuilder who gets your information from the internet, or you're someone who gets it from the, the regional competitors, it can have a very, very drastic uh, out, like influence on what you're actually doing. So if you seek out a mentor in person and then you read some stuff online, you might have some confusing messages. If you just go online, you're gonna be kind of, who do you find first, you know? So um, I think that does come down to uh, social influence and social groups because there's some pretty disparate uh, groups and they don't they also don't follow each other like I'm often surprised well let's say not not surprised but I am intrigued by when I get noticed by someone and what environments I go to so for example um, in uh, Australia and New Zealand if I go to a gym where there's a lot of IPF lifters or natural athletes someone almost always will be like hey are you Eric Helms but if I go to a gym where it's like uh, an untested powerlifting organization uh, or an untested bodybuilding like crew, like mm. they really have no idea who I am, um, which I guess that makes sense. But yeah. <clears throat> that's not always the case. Um, and some regions don't even have like options. Like it, it's so it, it's uh, it's intriguing with, with the world travel I do to figure out um, kind of what what groups I've penetrated and, and therefore what information might they have or not have access to. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure you see similar things. Yeah. Uh, when you said it, I was like, yeah, you see even to the point of which like the competitors that compete in different organizations, there's almost a bit of a, a group within the competitors there. So I, I definitely see it. And, uh, in the UK, at least, I would say Jordan Peters, uh, who's been on the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, he has a huge influence over the the natural scene and uh, the untested scene. So um, I'm not entirely like aware of all of his approaches, but I know he has a massive influence on them. So uh, it's it yeah, it's super interesting to see all the differences. In fact, and it's good to get your opinion on that. Yeah, yeah, I was I was just in um, in Hong Kong, which is a very interesting. Um, smashed together of, of Commonwealth culture and Asian culture and um, who people followed um, was very, very disparate. So there was a, there's a really good uh, classic physique or sorry, classic bodybuilding competitor who is 
lived most of his life in in Hong Kong, but is from the UK and he's he follows Jordan Peterson for the first time. He'd really gotten interested in my stuff and his questions were uh, like some of them were like, oh, you're really onto it. That's really interesting. I'm curious about that. And other ones were really you haven't heard of that or you never thought about that or haven't tried that. So it's uh, and then other people had um, not, only been influenced by my stuff. So it was it was interesting to see within the same group of people who signed up for seminars, they somehow heard of, of 3DMJ, um, what information they had had and come to. Um, and this is a totally different discussion than what you brought me on for, but it's, it's really good for someone who has uh, a platform to be aware of what people are bringing to the table and what level of information someone might have. Um, because you can create a bubble within your own perception of what the normal level of information is. Like, obviously the only way I interact with people outside of, you know, people I meet in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, is through social media. But now as someone who is not just a participant in social media and following people, but I've gotten to the point where I have a large following, I don't, it's easy to forget that I've created this own community culture and, and people to interact with around me. Um, which is, you know, like cool if I want to share a post and share information, but it can skew my perspective of what the baseline knowledge is, what people know, what people are coming to the table with. And, you know, so sometimes I'll get a question. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, yes, really? You know, like, <laughs> so, um, so I think that that's, that's been a good thing for me to remind myself about. Yeah. I think the fact you're getting those questions is encouraging to me at least, because it means people who there's people from the outside who don't know that much who are now learning more. Uh, that's exciting. That means you're reaching more, a wider audience at least. Yeah. And I mean, I, I also like, I'm kind of like, duh, cause I've been actually like, I started the podcast at Omar where yeah. our entire purpose was to connect threads. And, uh, you know, right towards the end of my prep, I appeared on like a bunch of different YouTube channels with very different foci. Um, I was on, you know, Jeff's Alan Thrall's, um, and, uh, and, and Omar's within months, you know, and, uh, and all of a sudden my Instagram account bumped up a lot. And, uh, so the, the, what people were interested in and why they came to see me, cause I kind of have a, a lot of bits in my Venn diagram, like, you know, science, strength, athlete, bodybuilding, um, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, it's been, it's been cool to be able to try to connect those things, answer questions, share information etc so yeah i'm glad you brought up the podcast of omar because i don't think you've been on since you launched that so i'll be surprised if any of our listeners aren't aware of it already um but i don't know if you want to kind of intro that like talk about it a little bit how's it i'm interested actually like how are you enjoying it how's it how's it all going it seems like it's going really well oh man i love it it's 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 been so much fun so um essentially kind of the, the backstory here is uh omar and i have had this growing bromance over time where we always just really appreciated each other's work. He would um, contact me. I think the first time I remember him contacting me was he wanted to talk about FFMI um, back after I wrote an article about it that was in uh, Alan Ergot's Research Review. That was 2014. And he messaged me and said, hey, I just want to make sure I'm representing this right. Here's what I wanted to put out. And I'm like, oh, dude, that's awesome. Um, So that was 2014. And then prior to that, he'd had Alberto on a few times to talk uh, training. And then he did, uh, the Kaizen program with Birdo. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he'd had, basically I was doing videos for his channel through 2015, 2016. And then in 2017, he was like, I want to bring you out and do, do a Kaizen program. So I helped him launch the first Kaizen nutrition focused plan. And we just really hit it off. Um, we had a lot of good chemistry. Um, and since then we were like, we want to collaborate we couldn't, it's, it's almost like we didn't have something to collaborate on, yeah. but we just wanted to find an excuse to do it. And I think he was craving an outlet for long form content. Um, I had become very interested in, uh, the value of history and something, you know, I just started to realize like when you have a very narrow focus to your, to your knowledge, um, and it's non multiple, non multidisciplinary, um, like, like you don't need much. But like if you're completely ignorant to the basis of philosophy, as an example, as a scientist, you can make some pretty egregious errors and vice versa. Um, And uh, so that's something I was aware of through my academics. But then I started to notice it 
in uh, in like the bodybuilding community. Right. Like people who were <laughs> like it comes back to FFMI is where I first noticed that people were like, oh, you cannot be that big. And I'm like, we literally have historical records of people who are bigger than that, you know, like, but you have no idea who that is. Like, how can you claim to be a bodybuilding fan if you don't know who John Grimmick is? You know, come on or or stuff like that. Um, you know, people only know of the Sandow is the thing that Ronnie Coleman got a lot, you know. So anyway, um, I started to see a lot of value and a lot of uh, knowledge and experience and uh, meaning to be gained from looking uh, into the roots of, of our culture. Um, Omar was something that he's interested in as well and also wanted to produce more long form content. And uh, I wanted to find a way to create more connection among our community. So we just kind of brainchilded Iron Culture as like just a passion project. And shit, man, we're in our mid-30s for episodes. So it's been around for that many weeks because we've done one every Monday. Yeah. And we've had some really cool guests on who are typically not on the same podcast, which is interesting and very cool. And um, it's given us an opportunity to have a lot of fun um, and feel like we're doing uh, important work, you know. So so it's it's gone great. And I'm expecting an invite, I guess, next week. Is that right? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I mean, we're, so we're going to look at <laughs> our schedule. Uh, and then and then we've been having some internet issues. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm destroyed. <laughs> I'm destroyed. Um, but it's, yeah. It, truly, trust me, it's just internet problems. That's all it is, <laughs> you know. But it's nice to have more very high quality podcasts in very similar, like, discussions but also different so it's really nice it's not just it doesn't feel like another repeat podcast which unfortunately that does seem to happen um and again you've got a broad reach so it's great that more people are going to be reaching that and yeah all the nerds of omar's listeners can kind of have the long form content there as well well thanks man i really appreciate that i i I think um you do a fantastic job with your podcast so that that respect means a lot man thank you thank you uh so anyway enough of that if we have we covered your kind of post-show period enough do you feel like or is there anything particular that's within this kind of post-show period that's been different i know you've been hitting some different goals so you've been doing strongman which seems new to you um how Mm. is that you something you chose to do particularly at this period of time or is it always something that's been on like the bucket list yeah a little bit of all of it so i think i think the key take-home summary for the post-show period is that um, it's very easy to get wrapped up into post-show paradigms, which line up with uh, the craziest part of these desires. Like I think the the most straw man extreme version of, of the reverse diet where you stay in a deficit for a while, slowly add food, slowly drop cardio and stay as lean as you can while building up calories. Like everyone kind of wants to do that because you don't want to lose the shreds. You work so hard um, and it was your all encompassing focus for at least a couple months. Uh, and in, in most cases, like six months or longer, if we're talking about a bodybuilder, um, and it's very easy to talk yourself into that being a good idea, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, you'll start shifting your perspective and be like, Oh, I think the P ratio research says this, you know, like, so it's very easy to let your biases cloud your judgment. Um, but I think we all know that when your testosterone is completely in the toilet or you've completely lost your menstrual cycle, you can't sleep through the night. Uh, and you are in a place where you can't even maintain your normal levels of muscle mass you had months ago, that's not a great place to try to hang out or even close to. And uh, recovery should be the goal. Um, And from what we've seen from research, it can take, it almost always takes at least multiple months to get back to a place where your body is actually in a good state for building muscle. And all of the whole, it's better to be leaner when you want to put on muscle mass, A, is completely not, there's no research basis of that. It's theory at best, and it's theory based on people who uh, are not lifting weights and who are not have not have dieted to be lean, but just happen to be lean. So the whole idea of dieting to then have a good 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 bulking phase, um, I think it's likely wrong and uh, has no evidence to support it, and certainly is not dieting to the point where you can barely function. So anyway, the the general recommendations we have as the quote unquote recovery diet is to get up to about five to 10% over your stage weight within one to two months, and then to slowly start building calories. So it's an intentional large surplus, cutting out most of your cardio, et cetera. And that's what I did. And it was by far the best um, post-show period I've had. And I'd say I felt 90% normal six-week post-show. 
um, which is pretty damn good mm -hmm. for someone who dieted from December to uh, August. Although I was eating up and I did have multiple diet breaks and I had uh, two to three refeeds a week the whole time. So um, with that huge caveat, uh, there are other things that are really important as one moves into the off season and that is combating the, uh, the often empty nest syndrome people experience kind of the what now or just the general malaise or melancholy feelings. Um, you know, a lot of people finish a season with things left unfinished, um, cause we just don't have as much control over the outcome as we, as we want, you know, um, I think one of the things I learned from my contest prep was that, I have a hungry, competitive, shark-like minded uh, bodybuilder inside of me uh, who maybe I have not respected enough and, and acknowledged that as a part of me because I go, oh, no, those, those aren't my values. Like I'm right. 3D muscle journey, you know. And I think when you try to deny a part of yourself, it will kind of grow in the shadows and slip into the, the driver's seat of your bus. And next thing you realize is that all the different crazy people who live inside your head, which all added together, make your total personality. Um, the adult is no longer driving the bus. So there was a point in my prep where the, the bodybuilder who wanted to win and get his pro card and compete at, at worlds one day was firmly in the driver's seat. Um, and I looked up and I found myself, uh, I noticed it, um, when I sent a message to Birdo and I said, Hey man, I'm kind of taking this loss a little, a little harder than I expected. And I was like, loss, what are you talking about? You just placed second in your class. And I, highly competitive class. So the fact that I just, without even thinking about it, framed mm -hmm. placing second as a loss made me realize that I had um, subverted some of my own values, you know? So, um, what I'm getting at is that knowing yourself and understanding where you're at in prep is really important. And you have to be very intentional with kind of maintaining a focus on, on, on your values, uh, the meaning you derive from it and not letting, uh, something outside of your control and your power uh, shift your 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 ability to find happiness and meaning in what you do. So the way I emphasize it is I've got this cake and I've got this three layered cake. I've got the main part of the cake. We've got our, you know, the actual cake layer. Then we have the frosting and then we have the cherry on top. Um, and everyone comes to the table with uh, the elements of those cake being inhabited by different goals, but the goal to eventually get a competitor to, uh, and this is framed for a competitor because some people who don't even need to compete, they don't have to worry about this at all. Um, is that the process, uh, the act of lifting, the act of competition going through the journey, uh, regardless of the outcome, regardless of even how you compared relative to your own previous, uh, physique on stage, uh, is the cake. So that that's, that's enjoying, um, all of the lessons and the experiences. Then the frosting layer, uh, which is the second biggest layer, is did I improve upon my last season? Um, and this might start with a very kind of simplistic, more objective, analytical thing early on when you're in your 20s and 30s of I'm going to take a picture of myself and compare it to a picture of myself from last season. Am I better? Would a judge place me higher than me? And I think that's a fine place to be. But at a certain point uh, when you're in you know, natural bodybuilding, I'd say you're late 40s and early 50s. Um, it may be that uh, you certainly can't put on any more muscle and you're like, okay, I'm seeing if I can retain more muscle in the process or if I can get a little leaner or improve my posing or get better color or what have you. Uh, you kind of, you eventually max that out. So then improvement has to be reframed is to, you know, did I have a better relationship with food or my family or myself or did I enjoy the process more? Um, and then, so that layer can, can change a lot, you know, um, whether you're having, you know, key lime pie or whether you're having chocolate cake, you know, that so that that flavor will change as um, as what progression means to you. But there is a point where uh, that objective progression is no longer possible. And then finally, the cherry on top is, did you reach some objective external goal? Did you get your pro card? Did you place first? Did you uh, win an, a novice overall and now you're going to go to the open? Did you win an open overall? Uh, and, and now you got your pro card. Did you compete in the pros? Did you place top five at worlds? Are you a world champion, et cetera? And it's really important to recognize that as you move up through those layers of the cake, you have increasingly less control. You're losing locus of control, which is why it's important to make those cake layers, uh, 
larger in areas where you have control over your own experience. So the journey and your experience of the journey is completely based on how, how you frame it. Progression is substantially affected by how you frame it. And the external outcome uh, is influenced by what you've done. You know, if you've improved upon yourself, if you had a good journey, if you did everything right, if you had a textbook prep, um, that is going to increase your likelihood of doing better externally relative to your capacity. Um, but the reality is that if I do everything right versus, say, um, you know, Ben Howard or David Kay or, uh, you know, Philip Ricardo Jr. or Rob Hope or doing everything right, there's a very different outcome. They end up being multi-time world champions and I end up, say, knocking on the door of a pro card like I did in this season. So anyway, to kind of dial it all the way back to me, I found myself very disappointed uh, that I didn't get a pro card this season, mm -hmm. uh, even though that was one of my goals. And I had this push and pull within me. Like part of me knew, like, I'm done. It's been 34 weeks of dieting. Um, my body is starting to no longer cooperate. Yeah. Um, I am starting to get more interested in food than anything else. And I just, I just, also I'm like my, my work, uh, my, my relationships and all those things are starting to suffer a little bit. Um, I should shut this down. And then another part of me going, well, dude, you're only four weeks out from another pro qualifier. You're going to be in Singapore anyway. Why don't you do the Singapore yeah. pro show? <laughs> so having this push and pull inside of me was an opportunity to look internally. Um, so anyway, um, that was a really difficult experience for me to, uh, try to evaluate that, but a very valuable experience in that it gave me an opportunity to work on enjoying the cake layers in the right order, framing, uh, Hey, one of the things I need to do to progress next time I decide to compete is to maybe have affirmations about why I'm doing this and what's important to me and um, not not go through that. Because there was a few shows in the very end or one show in the very end where I was not as active backstage and connecting with people. I was not I was I did fine. Don't get me wrong. Um, but knowing relative to what I have done and where I could be. I didn't enjoy the day as much because I was focused. I had like, there's blood in the water. Uh, I've got a shot at getting into this overall. And then I need to win that overall because that's my pro card, you know. And that was something that was a distraction to me being present. Um, you know, so the funny thing is if I'd gotten my pro card, I don't think I'd be able to look back and realize that I had gotten away from my values and goals. Yeah. So in many ways, the uh, placing second uh, was something that was very valuable to me. And, you know, it took me a couple of weeks to look back on the season and really appreciate the fact, oh, shit, I, I won an overall and placed second in three classes. Uh, sorry, four classes because I did a crossover in one show. So why am I unhappy? Like, and I peaked really well at each show. Uh, I was within, I would say, one show is a little flat, but very hard. One show is a little overpeaked, but still like with not with like spilled over. So, I mean, I, I had four shows where I nailed a peak when previously it was a head scratcher for me. Uh, I got in shredded condition and I felt that I, you know, brought, brought the best package I could to stage that many times. So there's nothing to be unhappy about really according to my values. And it is good self-awareness to realize that, Oh, I do care about winning and that's okay. So long as it's put in the right perspective. So that was a really good learning experience. But at the same time, as I'd said, the prep had started to become, a, uh, enough of a detractor in my life that I didn't want to continue. So the reason why I decided to focus on a uh, strongman comp was to do something where I was not focusing on my body, but external, something that would be hindered by me trying to stay lean or, or keep dieting. Uh, so I needed to recover. I needed to learn new skills. I needed to try something different. I needed to change my training. I needed to eat. Um, and it also gave some objective, limits. So there's a under 80 kilo class, which was like my lowest weigh in was 79.5. So that would be like stay in shredded condition yeah. and, and have a depleted day and we'll <laughs> compete in that class. So good, not an option. So we have a, a nice, um, a nice thing to prevent me from being dumb. And this 90 kilo class, that's perfect. That's within like eight to 12% of my stage weight. So I'll compete at the top of the 90 kilo class and it's a month after my show, bam, it lines up with kind of my idea of the recovery diet perfectly. Um, so now I'm on Saturdays, I'm training with stones and truck pull and I'm playing with, with logs and things like that. A lot of fun, Ad objective, 
performance markers instead of me looking in the mirror. Uh, and uh, something that I did want to do for a long time. But as anyone who knows who's been following Strongman, that sport has changed a lot uh, since the, the 2000s when the World's Strongest Man was on TV. And it was just kind of that one outcome. And now there's the the Arnold. And then now there's Arnold's in multiple different parts of the world. And they qualify for one another. It's very even... If you think it's difficult to figure out the uh, landscape of powerlifting or bodybuilding, it's also a head scratcher to figure out how the different strongman competitions are organized, lead to one another, what it means to be a pro or an amateur, et cetera, uh, the different weight classes, being a strong woman. It's all not clear, you know. So that's been a fun thing to learn about. And uh, back when I first looked at getting into strongman in 2007, locally in Northern California, there was... I don't think there was strong women at all. For one, it was it was just for strong men, um, and there was two weight classes. Uh, there was over one twenty five, and there was under one twenty five. Wow! <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't really feel like there's a point to this. This is like huge dudes under six foot and huge dudes over six foot, you know. So, and being over six foot and not a huge dude, I couldn't really do either one. Like I, uh, I realized that with training, I would get to the point where I could do a single rep on some of the, the competition implements on under 125. So now that's changed a lot. You know, there, there's multiple different levels of competition and different pathways. There's like static monsters, which is more like, you know, a powerlifting meet with strongman implements. And there's um, the medley-based events that might qualify you for the strongest man competition in your region, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's also a challenge because uh, – if you look at my my powerlifting history, my strongest lifts are are they don't line up. If you look at my weightlifting and powerlifting, like I'm pretty much like out of all the big lifts people do, my weakest lifts are my overhead press and my conventional deadlift. So strongman's a good challenge. So um, I'm a good sumo puller. I'm a pretty good squatter. I'm a good bencher. So you know if I can lean back more on the log and uh, you know and I can find some squatting events, I do all right. But the the lack of sumo pulling and the, the heavy emphasis on overhead work, I think, is a, a really fun challenge for me. And it also means that I'm, for a longer period of time, I can just focus on progression mm. uh, rather than how do I place in strongman because how I place in strongman is, uh, let's just say, not worth talking about <laughs> at this stage. So. Well, well, thank you, Eric, for going through all of that because I think that discussion of why you've gone towards strongman is incredibly valuable especially because we're coming to the end of the season all the kind of finals at least in the uk are kind of um like coming to an end now so if anyone who hasn't placed where they wanted to of which there's tons of competitors who never place where they wanted to the majority of all people probably yeah, exactly <laughs> so um it's very rare that anyone's completely satisfied when they do become anything but first but in reality and like you coach so many people and like i've coached people and they haven't placed even in placing and it's crushing as a coach is crushing as the competitor. But um, when you do what you said and you focus on the sponge, the, the cake um, and all the process and enjoying that, making sure you're getting what you want out of it, that's what breeds longevity. Because I guess now you can kind of, oh, I can be like, oh, actually I can compete again and I can enjoy that part of the process. And then the, it is just the, the icing up. Well, no, the cherry on the cake is the placing because you can't control who turns up. You can see no. you see that with any shows. Like you can look at different qualifiers and all these competitions. You can look at the caliber at different places, and some people will place first where they might have placed last at another show. It's just kind of somewhat luck of the draw. So I think that was incredibly valuable for the listeners. Thanks, man. And I think uh, a useful case study in this is uh, Jeff Alberts, who did his first show in '93. Um, and like, if you look at him now, you think, oh, that guy's a freak. He's always been a freak. You know, like what, what can I learn about focusing on the process from a guy who's, you know, it's one a pro show, one, two pro shows now and is placed top five at WBF worlds, like whatever. But what people don't know is that Jeff started competing in 93, but didn't get his pro card until 09. Um, so that's a lot of time. <laughs> that's mm. 16 years of, of competing not just lifting. Um, and by the time he won his pro card, ironically, the pro card was a cherry on top. So he had quote unquote retired multiple times before that and kept getting drawn back to the stage, thankfully. 
but uh, he had some some his self-described very negative experiences because he was so focused on winning. Uh, I think one particular experience in 01, he lost. Well, he he framed it as losing by one point. He was one point away from winning the overall and getting a pro card, um, and he was very frustrated and just down and and hung up the trunks for a few years. Um, and I think some people would have hung up the trunks permanently, yeah. you know, and had a negative experience and looked back at the sport and always felt like something left unfinished. But because he was able to keep reordering and reshifting the, uh, the size of his cake, he got to the point where he got on stage in 09, almost exclusively focused on the journey, which also helped form 3d muscle journey. That was when we started it. Uh, and Berto and I and, and Brad and, and Jeff got together and found this kind of the shared value that we're talking about now. Um, but that's ironically the year he won his NGA and his WNBF pro card was the year he came back to the stage purely just to, to be at his best, enjoy the process and, uh, you know, talk to people backstage and make connections. And that resulted in his new career. It resulted in him actually winning multiple overalls and getting a pro card. So, uh, he didn't actually get the cherry on top until it was just a cherry on top. Um, and it took him 16 years and he did it in his late thirties. So I, I know there's a lot of folks who are uber, uber focused on winning and that's fine. It may always be a part of you and you have to respect that. You can't expect yourself to be something you're not, but in an individual sport, uh, even if one of your primary goals is winning, you have to realize that focusing on winning is objectively not the best way to win. You know, and we actually have data on that, on behavior uh, that being process oriented is actually better for achieving goals rather than being goal oriented when we're talking about long term goals that are, uh, you know, largely based on you just being consistent, you know. So um, there's no defense in bodybuilding short of pulling a, you know, a Tanya Harding um, and, and breaking somebody's knee backstage. It's, it's you're not going to be able to change the outcomes. It's not an, a UFC fight. It's not a team sport, you know. So, yeah. It's funny. It reminds me as as you were talking about it. Um, I can remember in Matt Ogus in his vlogs when he was competing, and he would I think he would write or do something every day about kind of winning his pro card. And I can remember it being in his vlogs, and then he obviously didn't get it. And I, I imagine mm -hmm. it makes it all the worse when you have focused so much on that kind of outcome, and then you just yeah, you're never you did, just don't get it. So I think like you said, focusing on the process like Jeff has learned to do and um, you're encouraging others to do and we do encourage others to do is un it's so valuable. Um, and something I wanted to ask actually, Eric, was I don't know if you find, I've at least found this, where at least when I compete, I think I am very objective and I know myself, but I think I become a little bit kind of ignorant to some of the things that I end up doing um, and experiencing. It's only in hindsight that I realize it. Is that something that you find is common in competitors? Oh, it's almost unavoidable. You know, the, um, the changes that happen to you are, you know, in many part physiologically driven. So it's like your, 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 your way of seeing the world, you know, like, like if we have, if we think of it as like, there's an objective world that we inhabit and we have this human machine named, you know, Steve or Eric that is taking in information the actual way that machine is working changes. So our ability to perceive things is inevitably influenced by that, you know, and the only way we can tell that that's happened is when the changes are extreme enough that we notice that we're noticing things in a different way, you know? Um, so for example, some part of me noticing that I framed second place as a loss, it stood in such stark contrast to the way I've communicated with hundreds of competitors the way we talk about things in our podcast and, you know, our values at 3DMJ that uh, like an inner observer of myself observing my behavior was like, what, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think you can do that a little bit, but it's got to really veer off of your own radar. It's got to be something quite different. Like another, <laughs> another example during the recovery diet process. So I'll often have a, like canned tuna and I'll put it in these, these packs of soup. Um, which sounds a lot better than it is. And during prep, I would like work very hard to get all the little bits of tuna out of the nooks and oh, crannies yeah. of the can. <laughs> right. You know what I'm talking about. And, uh, to get like, you know, a quarter of a gram of protein. Uh, and yesterday I found myself having canned tuna 
And uh, I started to try to get it. And then my brain immediately went, I don't care enough. I don't want to do this. Like this is going to take five minutes for no reason. And I just washed it out. And I went, oh, this this is now I'm changing from the way I was in prep. You know, like there was a point in January and February where I started to begin to dig out the last bits of tuna after, you know, two to three months of dieting. And here I am, you know, almost two months post diet and I don't want to do it anymore. I'm changing, you know. Um, so I think. I think you'll notice those things, but there's a whole gradation that's occurring that you are ignorant to because it's kind of this slow change in behavior that you wouldn't notice. So one of the most important things I think you can do is to regularly check in with people you trust and care about and who, you, who care yeah. about you. So I would regularly check in weekly with my, my wife, Barbara, um, and I would regularly check in multiple times with, with Alberto. In fact, one of the next podcast episodes coming out in uh, – on the 3DMJ podcast is Berto and I doing like a recap of the season and me asking him like, how did I do now that I'm six weeks post show and you feel comfortably honest with me, let's <laughs> do this, you know, uh, in front of the world. And I think that kind of feedback is, is really invaluable because writing solo, um, you, you don't realize how much your brain is changing and your ability to perceive is changed. Um, you know, you, you can only see what you can see and your blind spots might be similar, but they're going to grow as your focus becomes narrower, which is kind of what the process of prep is. Um, so little things like being shorter in conversations or having a more negative tone uh, or being more task focused, uh, getting distracted in the middle of someone talking because you're calculating macros in your head or you're thinking about your next meal or you're just tired, you know, um, finding things that would be so low level annoying to you in the off season that you wouldn't even register it as annoying to then being annoyed by it in prep. It tells you a little something about the off season and in prep. And it also tells you a little bit how about how to not be an asshole, you know, or how to focus more. So yeah, I think it's, there's a ton of stuff like that. And there's a lot of rich opportunities to learn more about yourself, your stress levels, things you do and don't like, because there's a lot of things that we manage, you know, like, and I, something, something I say to people is, yeah, stress management is a huge part of life. Um, but just because you manage a stress doesn't mean it's not a stress. Um, and a lot of us are, we adapt to our environment, even though it might not be what we would do if our environment was different. Like, for example, there's a huge increase in the number of people who think they're night owls because the circadian rhythm mm. research is coming out and uh, we people find out, oh, like you can be a night owl or you can be an early riser. And then they think it's like an eight hour difference or something like that. You know, like it's normal for me to be awake, awake till 4 a.m. <laughs> like, no, it's like a two hour shift. And it might actually be that you live in a dark house, never leave and look at your phone until 2 a.m. Uh, it might have nothing to do with your actual circadian rhythm. And if you actually got up with the sun, got up, got up outside, uh, you you might find, oh, I am a night owl. And it means I get up at 9 a.m., not 1 p.m. Or I'm not a night owl at all. So um, artificial light is just one example of how our environment has yeah. drastically changed our natural patterns. Or, for example, an introvert who is born into a family with, with six siblings. You might become very good at appearing extroverted, managing behaviors, you know, smiling and, and carrying on and finding ways to get breaks and all that. And you, your whole life you've kind of seen yourself as someone who's good in a group, but you start to realize through prep when your, your Ram is all taken up, if you will, and your stress levels are a lot higher that people stress you out. You don't get energy from them and you need a break. And, uh, that's something you can take into the off season. So those are some of the, uh, the side benefits you might not realize from being under this higher level of stress as you get a better insight into what you might actually need, uh, where your the cracks in your armor are. And when they go from being, tiny little cracks to like full blown, you know, gauntlet falling off your arm and shit like that. Yeah. That's when you can really get better and in, better insight into what, what kinks need to be shorn up and, and what, what you should work on and what you can learn from in the off season and in season alike. And do you think every time you compete, do you think that makes you a better coach because you're kind of re-experiencing it and learning something every time as well? I think it can. Um, if, if, if you're asking me directly, I'd like to think so because I try to make that a learning process. Yeah. Um, I think you can also prep in such a way that it makes you a worse human each time you do it until you quit the sport <laughs> yeah. or until you get an ultimatum from someone and it's either I'm quitting you or you're quitting yeah. the sport. 
Um, and you see that a lot. Like I would say in some, some of the, the more mainstream outlets of bodybuilding, uh, when a bodybuilder isn't successful, uh, the answer is to get more hardcore, right? Take more drugs, train harder, diet harder, diet longer, get more focused and make your life appear more like a animal pack ad, uh, magazine, right. Or, or advertisement, I should say. Um, and I largely see that result in burnout. Um, I think rarely is, is a bodybuilder not successful because they're not trying hard enough. Yeah. You know, like if you actually, the person who's decided to get on stage, it's not because you're not hardcore enough and you weren't successful. It's that there are, um, a, some things outside of your control. You need to focus on what you can control, uh, or B, uh, you need to integrate things better, you know? So without fail as a coach and, you know, please share if there are times when, when this doesn't line up with what your experience is, um, especially with, with multi-time competitors, not just like first time novices who've never been exposed to the sport. And I'd like to do, you know, then the novice bikini division or novice men's fitness for my 40th birthday. Like that's a little bit different. Sometimes those people learn that that's actually not the best outlet and they are not, uh, a lifelong bodybuilder, at least competitively. There's someone who, uh, saw that as a, a viable outlet and then realized, Oh, why am I doing this? I can just lift weights or, or join a uh, powerlifting gym or, or do CrossFit or something much more, uh, holistically yeah. <laughs> reasonable. But anyway, for people who are true competitors at heart and will be competitors for a long time, uh, the answer is rarely get more hardcore. Uh, the answer is find a way to make bodybuilding fit with my life better rather than amputating parts of my life, uh, or closing doors so that I can become more hardcore. Um, so I think the people who do that, um, often get worse or they get better and burnout has been my two observations. Um, you know, they compete year after year, get shredded and oh my God, then they're done, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and sometimes they can sustain it. Sometimes they can, they can reach a milestone goal that they crush themselves yeah. for, and then they need multiple years off and they can come back. But if they stay in the sport, they invariably figure out something that allows it to be sustainable for them or probably a better word would be adaptive. Right. If something is maladaptive or adaptive, it lets you adapt to your situation to continue the, the target thing and may not be objectively ideal from the outside, but at the very least it allows itself to be a self-contained continuing process, mm -hmm. which closes off certain completely unhealthy doors. You know, um, you can look at them and be like, ah, oh, they have a really weird relationship with food or they train unnecessarily hard, but oh, they can keep doing it and it's not making them unhappy. So fair call. Yeah. Kind of thing. Nice. I really appreciate that. And I think we might have to drag you on again, Eric, because uh, we haven't got to these questions that I I have for you, um, which are, are, are great. But I think maybe we can schedule another chat because um, I think this has been really uh, important, especially this time of the year. I think it's fantastic to talk about um, your experience post-show and you've given some incredible experience and kind of ways for people to kind of think about this time and kind of how they might strategize it for themselves. I do want to ask though, what is your kind of, are you thinking about the next time on stage? Now, you know, you've got like this shark of bodybuilder who wants to kind of get mm. that trophy. Have you got any ideas of that? How long are you going to be um, doing kind of strongman for, or is that going to be something you hold on to for quite a while? Yeah. So I have a fun goal for 2020, which is um, I'd like to get back on the weightlifting and powerlifting platform cool. and do a strongman comp in the same year. So that that's, that's pretty broad. That could be like, you know, February, July and December if I needed to be. Um, but I don't, so some things I do have some objective goals. I don't want to get back on a powerlifting platform or weightlifting platform until I can actually improve my total. So I've got to get more than a 200 kilo total in weightlifting and more than the 617 total in powerlifting. So from an external observation perspective, that should be very easy because that's not impressive at all. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, strongman, the beauty of it is, is I just, you know, the only comp I've done is stones and truck pull. I've got another one this weekend that's going to be, you know, log and conventional cool. deadlift with straps. So there's, there's so many ways that I could, uh, you know, set PBs and powerlifting, uh, strongman because I've only done, yeah. you know, four of the 40 events. So just doing a strongman comp in, in 2020, that's tick that box and just don't get hurt. So right now I'm, I'm wetting the palate of the inner competitor with uh, strength sport. 
um, and then really, really focusing on intelligent programming, uh, conservative programming, um, because all of these different uh, strength sports require high loads and pushing them uh, in lots of different ways. And I, I just really need to stay injury free as someone who's, you know, 36 and uh, with, with not a, I wouldn't say I, I have a an injury history that's like you've done it perfectly, but I also don't have an injury history like, whoa, like you watched way too many West Side videos, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm somewhere in the middle. Like I've had a reasonable number of injuries for in terms of both uh, quantity and and magnitude of of of, uh, of damage they caused. I'm like, hey, pretty normal. So I need to make sure I don't have any more or that they are quite minor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to be smart. So that that's a, that's a fun, interesting challenge. And I'm going to try to focus on that for as long as I can and just uh, let the desire to get back on stage bubble up if it does. I can tell you for this, for 100% sure, it's definitely not going to be 2020. Um, and I'd be super surprised if it was 2021 mm-hmm. um, because right now I'm a lot more interested in eating donuts than getting back on stage. So don't blame me. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if I had to guess maybe 2023, like do it my 40th birthday, get back on, on stage. Um, but, but I don't know we'll see. Like if, if it's 2022 and Birdo's like, Hey, it's not quite the year 3000, but I'm going to get back on stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, and we can talk Brad into it, then I'll probably jump up and, 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 and don the speedo again just because it was really cool getting to prep alongside Jeff and yeah. he's actually just a few weeks out from worlds now in New York. So I think that'll be a really, really cool experience. And, uh, kind of the dream has always been for us coaches to all compete at the same time, but it's difficult to make that stuff line up. Yeah. I don't, I'm not surprised about that at all. And I, I'm surprised you said Brad, cause I know he'd said he kind of had hung his sh- trunks up and he was all about the, the kind of powerlifting life. So it's exciting that there might be something there. Yeah, Brad was. Uh, I think he's 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 enjoyed watching me and, and Jeff do our thing, and I think if Brad was going to do it again, it would probably be an opportunity to compete with all of us, and it would be something very very different. Because speaking of sharks, there was a time where where Brad was smelling blood in the water, you know, <laughs> and uh, he was a highly competitive amateur in the mid two thousands when um, people didn't know that glutes had striations. Um, they just thought Brad had unique a, a unique butt structure. Because he was uh, the shred master back in the day and uh, leveraged that to his advantage. But I think as someone who smells blood in the water and not having great structure for the sport and then the conditioning standard raising, yeah. um, realizing that his kind of his uh, his his trick shot now became the standard was it was difficult for him. But I think that's something we all kind of have to, to to remodulate in our brain and. He, if he can remodulate things and he's like, you know, there's, I, I find value and meaning and getting on stage and, and doing it alongside uh, the rest of the coaches, I think he might do it. So I think don't quote me on that, but it'd be cool. That's really exciting. And I think, um, unfortunately, Eric, you've been part of the problem. You've popularized natural bodybuilding and now there's just freaks coming out everywhere, joining the sport and they're more okay, educated. The, the pyramid is wrong. <laughs> Energy balance is false. Protein is unimportant. And the only thing that matters is supplements. <laughs> and please take supplements that are not allowed and then disclose them in the polygraph so that you get taken out of the show. Fantastic. I want to win a class of one and get my pro card. Yeah. Eric, I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on the show again. Um, it's always great chatting to you. And like I said, we'll probably have to try and drag you on again um, to have a chat about these questions, which I know we've got so many questions coming in. People love it when we have the Q&A. So um, we'll have to do that sometime if you'd be so kind to do so. And I want to ask, is there anything you want to kind of let the listeners know about? You've got any projects kind of coming up, anything new? Um, we'll make sure that the podcast is linked below and all your useful information is generally there. Cheers, man. And I would be honored to be back on and answer the questions. And I'm sorry, I'm so effusive that we didn't get to answer them. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I would say this time of year, since this is going to be coming out in October and people are finishing their seasons, I would ask people to check out the 3DMJ Vault. Um, and that's 3DMJVault.com. And we have a free course on the recovery diet there. Um you can also just Google recovery diet, uh, 3DMJ, and you can find the YouTube video where we talk about it, all of us coaches. Uh, but the one in the vault has links to that video as well as a written document so you can understand what makes sense from a physiological perspective and behavioral perspective post-show and how to get back 
firing on all cylinders as soon as possible. Um, some other resources around that, if you're interested in checking out my books, I have a whole chapter on uh, kind of bodybuilding periodization, if you will, big picture and what to do uh, with your nutrition and how to handle post-show and behavior and all that stuff. So it's muscleandstrengthpyramids.com. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're interested in iron culture, you can find us on pretty much any platform. And then finally, uh, I would encourage you to go to 3dmusclejourney.com. And under the education tab, there is my research. And I published a lot of open access research. There is specifically a article uh, that I put out with Jake Lenarden and Katarina Pernjak called Towards a Sustainable Paradigm in Physique, Sport, Nutrition, and Narrative Review. And that is all about how to have a healthier relationship with your body and food and the sport and some of the recommendations we can make based upon the literature. And it does go into what to do post-show, how to make the transition between in-season recovery and, uh, and off-season. And it's uh, open access and free. And uh, it has peer-reviewed citations all throughout it if you want to really go down the rabbit hole. So check that out. Fantastic. And yeah, I think this is going to be a brilliant episode for anyone who is post-show. And all those resources I can highly recommend as well. So definitely make sure you check those out. Thank you again, guys, for listening. And we'll catch you soon.